a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Man, I'll tell you, I've been fighting a battle for the last week or so, just trying to keep my voice. But ready or not, here I come. There's so much going on, seriously. It's painful not to be talking about this stuff. And trust me, I'm a guy who likes to talk. Our show is brought to you by great sponsors like LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, Sewing and Quilting Center, also located in St. George, Utah, and Monticello College.org. So uh, let's start on a little bit of an optimistic note, shall we? There's a definite shift taking place around us. And I'm assuming that if you've been paying attention, chances are if you listen to this program, you are one of those people who pays attention. You have what uh, you know pilots call situational awareness of what's going on around you. Oh, boy. You know, the trucker protest that uh, has swept across Canada. This has been a huge, huge deal. And, uh, and how do we know it's a huge deal? Because right now, our media, and, and this is true, I think, with, with much of the media, hasn't said much of anything about it. Canadian media kind of has, has, has had no choice because, uh, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people lining the roadways and cheering these truckers on. I, I'm trying to remember how many how many truckers they're saying. I want to say something like 50,000. That maybe I'm maybe I'm overestimating the numbers. It's a lot. It's a lot of truckers. And so it's hard to deny the reality, right? These big rigs are driving around, especially when they got to uh, Ottawa. They're driving around, they're honking their horns and you know, you can't just pretend there's nothing going on out there when there's trucks, you know, blasting their horns. So instead, you know, Canadian media is kind of taking it. Well, this uh, this toxic freedom and are these dangerous public safety issues. These these people, they're disrespect for authority. They're they're going into, you know, full outrage mode. But again, here's the optimistic note. People are standing up. And the support that these truckers are seeing, and it's not just in Canada anymore. You're starting to see a groundswell of support for, for trucker protests in, uh, in America. You're seeing it in places in Europe. Let me just give you, this is Brian's version of why does this matter? So a bunch of truckers are getting uppity. What about it? Okay, anything that you have purchased whether you bought it off a store shelf, whether it was delivered to your door, you know, by Amazon or FedEx, anything that you have purchased, including the gasoline you just put in your car, it arrived on a truck. So you, you know, you and I, we have a, we have a stake in this. And when, when truckers and the transportation industry starts to put its foot down and say, uh-uh, <clears throat> we're not going to be backed into a corner any further. You better believe they actually have the power to bring things to a standstill. Now, of course, for some people, the question is going to be, well, why would they do that? Why, why, would, they, why would they do something that would, would cause inconvenience and perhaps even harm to somebody? 
Okay, well, the people who would ask that question are people without situational awareness because they're not looking at what's going on around them. They're not looking at the policies that have been implemented and imposed upon them and enforced upon them. Robbing them of personal autonomy, telling them you are not essential, your business has to shut down, destroying their livelihoods, robbing them of hope, separating them forcibly from loved ones. Okay, I don't have to go through the whole list, do I, right? We've, we've lived through the last couple of years. We've seen what can happen when, uh, you know, whether well-intentioned or otherwise, people in government start flexing powers that they're not supposed to be exercising. So, again, the optimistic part is there is a definite shift in the public's awareness of and their willingness to call out oppressive government policies. And the people in power see this. And so... Look, I'm, I'm not trying to be a wet blanket here. I'm very supportive of the idea that finally, oh, thank goodness people are standing up. But I do want to sound this note of caution. Because this is ex- this is extremely encouraging to me. It also causes me some concern for two reasons. Number one, the the people in power recognize that we are no longer sitting there in awe of them, waiting for them to give us instructions as to what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. And, you know, we're not taking our cues like a bunch of little five-year-olds waiting for permission to either eat our milk and graham crackers or to lay down and take a nap. It's our choice. No, we're, we're standing up to them. They know they are losing their control because the public is withdrawing its consent which puts them in a very dangerous state of mind. And you see this in the way that their lapdog media reports on, well, this is dangerous, this is extremism. I mean, they're, they're, they're trotting out all the usual tropes, right? Well, these truckers, this is all about uh, white supremacy, and this is about uh, racism. And it's, it's, they're just throwing all of their, their you know, mental cuss words out there of how can we demonize these people? That means they might be very tempted to do something to flex their power, to crack down, to to initiate violence. So we've got to be aware of that. It's the, the, the state is a wounded animal at this point, and even though the people are withdrawing their support, it's going to want to lash out. And the people who, who derive their power and derive their sense of purpose from the power of the state, they're going to want to reassert themselves. So we've got to watch for it. Here's the second problem, though, and this one, this one's squarely on us. The momentum is building, okay? The, the people who are standing and cheering as these truckers go by, holding flags and so forth. By the way, I just want to say, I have a few friends who are from Canada, and I've never had any kind of personal animus. I mean, sometimes people make fun of Canada. You guys get your milk in bags and whatnot. But I'm telling you, I am proud of the Canadian people. I am proud of, you know, people who we sometimes, you know, wink, wink, ha ha, they're so polite, you know, that they never even get their ire up. No, they're, they're showing some serious backbone, and I think they deserve recognition as, as such. There's a danger, though. When people start to unite around a theme, particularly if, if they're very animated and, and they're very passionate about what they're feeling, the distance between standing up and speaking with one voice against tyranny and turning into a mob and, and embracing mob mentality, it's, it's much smaller than you think. I mean, come on, the, the French Revolution, that's a good example of a mob that gets carried away. 
And as, as hard as we want that pendulum to swing back toward the side of freedom, if people get too carried away, it's very possible that that pendulum will be pushed way further beyond freedom into something that uh, that we don't really want. And we're going to talk about that in the course of the show today as far as, you know, accountability for, for government leaders. I don't want to see people dragged out in the streets and beaten or tarred and feathered or anything. But that's where mob mentality can go. So we've got to keep our wits about us. We've got to keep our principles always crystal clear and in sight, lest we get tempted to, you know, become a mob. I mean, for crying out loud, look, when, when teams win, when a sporting event is, is won by your favorite team, how often does that turn into people flipping over cop cars and burning things and breaking windows because they're celebrating? You just got to watch that mob mentality. That's I'm not accusing anybody of doing that right now. I'm just saying it's easier to get whipped into that state than, than most of us would like to admit. So let's proceed with caution. But as far as... You know, the willingness of people to stand up, ooh, it's growing. And here's, this is good news and bad, bad news in the sense that it's wonderful to see people finally coming to their feet, finding their voice, and just emphatically saying, no more. I am not going to be bullied any longer by this. But you also have to kind of wonder, where were you <laughs> the last two years when, when people were speaking out and saying, please, we've got to stand up. We've got to say something. I know it's it's easier. And, and look, I, I feel like I'm guilty of this as well. Well, it'll be it's it's safer now to speak up. You know, so let's not let's not deride people for taking so long to, you know, come to their senses. We've got a fair amount of responsibility that's sitting on us right now. And I say that from the standpoint of if, if something is worth having, and we'll just say for the sake of argument, freedom. If your freedom of conscience, your freedom, your personal autonomy, your ability to make your own medical decisions, if those are the real goals, if those are the reasons why we're standing up and asserting our rights, then we have a corresponding duty to use the highest possible means to do so. It can't be done just through anger. It cannot be done through violence. You know, the, the lofty ideals have to be backed up by, you know, ethical ways of getting to your goals. The ends don't justify the means. That only works for one side, and it's not the side that you want to be on. So when we come back, share some more of the good news with you. Just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I do want to give a quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. And... I hope that you will take the time to click on their link, which I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I actually have links to all of my sponsors, but click on the link, see what to, see what the specials are. Uh, Kendall's been running some really great specials here lately. Bottom line is, though, if you want to be prepared for whatever comes, whatever it may be, this is a great place to start, lifesavingfood.com. Well, let's start with some optimistic news about uh, the fact that we're winning the battle against COVID tyranny. 
Lou Rockwell, that's Llewellyn Rockwell Jr., and the founder of the LouRockwell.com website, says lockdowns and mask mandates have caused an upheaval in our economy. They've ruined the quality of life for many people. They don't work against COVID. Not only are vaccines a failure, but they've also killed a large number of people. Vaccines around the world have been using these perverted policies to control us and reduce us to mindless animals to be manipulated at will. But he says our high-minded masters in Washington and elsewhere have encountered a surprise. And that is people are not taking it anymore. They are saying no to vaccine mandates and lockdowns. They're refusing to wear masks. They're demonstrating in massive numbers against these draconian measures. And most importantly, they are forcing governments to back down. And he talks about different uh, <clears throat> different governments across the world, in Europe particularly, in New York, in Australia, for instance. Talks about how a couple of women saw, for instance, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy eating dinner at a restaurant with his family. Now, some people may disagree with this, but um, because he was maskless, one woman, you know, called him out on it. Now, Murphy just extended his state's lockdown. That's the ninth time he's done so. And at his dinner table, he tried to remain calm and Put on his mask. It's crazy. But there have been there have been all kinds of protests everywhere. There have been rallies that have taken place. Maybe you saw some of the ones that uh, that took place recently um, in in Washington D.C. There was a pro life rally. You know that's that may not be directly related to COVID, but before that there was a, I don't know they were calling it an anti vax rally, but it was a medical freedom rally. Against the mandates. And the numbers of people who are showing up show that this is not just some fringe idea of, you know, of a bunch of kooks out there, you know, trying to, uh, you know, harm the rest of the public. I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting. We are making governments that want to tyrannize us back up. And that is good news. We are winning, but let's let's do this smart. And that means you've got to have your principles clearly in mind, and you've got to be uh, you've got to be immovable in terms of being committed to those principles. But you cannot be an instigator or an initiator of violence. I wanted to ask this question too: What happens? What happens when people stop believing the government and the media? So let's take a closer look at the uh, trucker protest that swept Canada and is sweeping Canada and elsewhere. James Lewis, writing for AmericanThinker.com, asks the question, what happens when we stop believing government, when we stop believing media? Well, he draws a historic parallel and says, you know, arguably the USSR crumbled Because everybody was lying to everybody else. So nothing could be believed, especially economic transactions. You know, they 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 just didn't believe anymore. Now, he says with the Biden administration, the U.S. has entered the same territory. Anyone paying attention can see that the occupant of the White House lapses into dementia on a regular and accelerating basis. In moments of crisis, he's quietly sent out to have some ice cream and go shopping while the hidden hands that make the real decisions and make them badly take over. Now, these propaganda efforts, a joint project of the media and certain progressives in control of the Biden administration, don't even attempt anymore a veneer of plausibility. 
contradicting the everyday direct experiences of Americans. Here's a perfect example of this. I see where it was reported last week. The USDA claims 2021 retail food price inflation continued at the same pace as 2020. In other words, people are trying to tell you, hey, inflation really isn't happening, at least not with your food. Now, look, I don't do a lot of grocery shopping. I I, I do some, but uh, I do it enough. I'm in the grocery store enough. I pay attention to the prices enough and the, the quantities that you get for, for what you're, you're buying. There is no way anybody's going to convince me that food is not getting more expensive. It is drastically more expensive. Now, this doesn't translate to everything, and not everything is, you know, out, outrageously higher. But there are certain things that are definitely becoming more expensive. And it's not just a matter of the supply chain, or it's not a matter of, well, you know, Brian, uh, beef is killing our climate, so it should be more expensive. In fact, there ought to be some kind of a luxury tax on it. When we talk about inflation, you know, the, the higher prices that you see are the symptom of the problem, but they're not the cause of it. The cause of the problem is inflating the money supply. That's what's meant by inflation, dumping trillions of dollars into the money supply, which has the effect of diluting the purchasing power of every single dollar in the economy. More money chasing the same amount of goods and services. This makes sense, right? I mean, if, if, if it's something I can understand, I assume everybody else can get it. I'm certainly not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but... If I can break it down to where I can understand it, I'm thinking most people aren't going to have too much trouble with it. So the people who have money set aside, you know, people who are on fixed incomes, retirees and so forth, pensioners, they're the ones who really feel the pain of inflation because they've got their money set aside. They're on a fixed income. Every month I can count on this check coming, you know, a Social Security check or whatever. But when the same amount of dollars buys less and less because the purchasing power of every one of those dollars is quietly disappearing. This is going to sound, you know, like it's a bit of melodrama, but they're being robbed. It's a tax of sorts. And it's important that we don't allow politicians to shift the blame. I think uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren was trying to do this. I think it's unconscionable, these, these grocery stores... Why, they are just making money hand over fist and gouging people on prices. And so they float ideas like we need price controls, which if if you are seeing shortages or if you're seeing, seeing bare shelves right now, just wait until price controls come into effect. The free market is the place where you find the solutions that you're looking for. And I don't know what the margins are in terms of profit margins for grocery stores, but I know they are not that high. It's an awful lot of work, but it's a necessity. I mean, people need food. We've got to eat. So to hear government officials talk about, well, we need to get in there and fix this problem with high prices. The way you fix the problem with high prices is you and your cronies at the central bank back up and stop debasing the money supply. Stop spending like there's just no end to the amount of money that we have access to, which I guess when you, you know, just run the printing presses and, you know, make those dollars appear out of thin air. Yeah. Hey, you know, the sky's the limit. But here's the key. This is the takeaway. The media is not being truthful with us. 
And right now, our media are owned by about a half dozen transnationals with the practical effect that they all collude in their narratives, which leaves us surrounded by lies. And this is not just a moral and ethical challenge. It's also immensely impractical for a fairly free market, which freezes when information is centralized. The media owners and colluders have all the info. The free market has very little Now, when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about how that played into the demise of the Soviet Union. And it may actually portend that uh, we are seeing a similar slip into irrelevance on the part of some of the systems and the people who think that they are our rulers at this moment. Now, we know nature abhors a vacuum. So this is not just going to be a slam dunk without any risk. Something's going to want to fill that vacuum. We'll also have to make sure it's not something worse. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you'd like to subscribe to my show notes, please click on one of the links provided at thebrianhydeshow.com. The subscribe link is probably the one you're looking for. I'll just narrow the search down. Click on the subscribe link and I will email a copy of my show notes to you each day that I do the show. Back to the story here. Um, This is an article from theamericanthinker.com and it's from James Lewis. When the people stop believing the government and the media, and he's drawing an interesting, interesting parallel to this is one of the reasons why the Soviet Union crumbled as it did, because there came a point where all the might and all the power and all the bureaucracy and the controlling mechanisms and and various institutions that were there to keep everybody in line. Could not keep the narrative believable. I mean, even even the name of their official paper, Pravda, Truth. I mean, became synonymous with uh, well, if Pravda says it, you better believe you know the opposite is likely true. He says in the Brezhnev years, the magic evaporated. Children of the nomenclature, the nomenclature uh, started to laugh at their parents. Credibility crumbled, and that undermined everything. Now, again, this is the former Soviet Union, but he says, you know, the five-year plans were ridiculous. But now ordinary people started to laugh and sneer. And he says, I think that was one of the keys to the end of the Soviet Union. So if we can take that lesson, we're headed that way mainly because the organs of propaganda are now largely controlled. And he says, that's the key to our current battle. The free media are emerging like Samizdat emerged in the USSR. That's the underground media, if you will. Something I've talked about at some length with Eric Peters on this program. He says the hope, not certainty, is that our new Samizdat will penetrate and then flip the organs of propaganda. Google may demonetize conservative websites, but alternative advertising exchanges develop. YouTube can censor content, but Rumble emerges as a rapidly growing alternative. Trump's new social media venture, headed by Devin Nunes, a brilliant and tenacious seeker of the truth, awaits its debut. And James Lewis says, I think the radical left crony billionaire class knows this. They certainly act like they know it. Interesting. You know, there's been a lot of controversy over Joe Rogan here of late. And Joe Rogan's probably as as good a front man for the Samizdat media 
that, that we have. And, and hopefully you understand this. I think you of all people would, would know this. It's not because Joe Rogan has all the answers. What is the key to his unbelievable success? What gives him the kind of clout that can command an average of 11 million listens per episode of his podcast? And I think probably that number is headed higher. Given some of the topics he's willing to discuss and some of the people he's willing to have on. What is it? What gives him that immense power? Okay, it's not some kind of bloodline thing. Well, you know, he is part of the royal line and therefore everybody has to listen. It's not that he's super connected to all the rich and powerful. He doesn't run with the Davos crowd. I mean, the beauty of it is it's something much simpler. He simply speaks the truth or he speaks. He, he asks the kind of questions that allow people to come to the truth. I don't think Rogan's an ideologue. I don't know that it's, it's easy for people to dismiss him as, well, he's a comedian. He's just some mixed martial arts fighter. He's, he's a druggie, you know. He smokes pot. He advocates using DMT. He advocates magic mushrooms. I mean, come on. This guy's a hophead. How could anybody listen to him? Well, whatever his habits may be that you don't agree with, what sets him apart from so much of the other media and what what has has actually contributed to his incredible stardom and and awareness in in most people's minds these days is just the fact that he's willing to interview people and hear them out to let them freely speak about issues that those who want to control the media would rather not have discussed. And boy, there's a lot of hand-wringing going on right now about this. I mean, there are... There are people who are really concerned that, uh, you know, we've got to get Joe Rogan, you know, out of the picture. In fact, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, in, in the next hour of the show. Glenn Greenwald, who is, is one of the few journalists out there that really deserves to be called a journalist, has written about this increasing pressure campaign on Spotify to, to remove Joe Rogan. Now, look, I'm not trying to suggest that, you know, hey, Rogan's the answer to, to all of our, our problems here. But if you look at what's happening to him, the, the principles that you can, can apply to this situation are a really good indicator of why do people go? Why do they turn to the Joe Rogan experience, you know, as a way to learn? What does Dr. Robert Malone have to say? What did Dr. Peter McCullough have to say? What does Jordan B. Peterson have to say? It's because they know they can get a counterpoint to the managed narrative that's being blasted at us from every other corner of the controlled media. And the crazy thing about it is it's working. The blockade on information, you know, the gatekeepers who are there to make sure that you only hear the things you're supposed to hear, it's not working. And that leads to some really interesting, you know, exchanges in among the, the political class and, and their, their commentators... I mean, there was, a, I, I forget the lady's name, probably doesn't matter. She was, she's a, she's a writer and, and uh, she was there on uh, Brian Stelter's show on CNN, just uh, emoting about how, well, the problem is people are concerned that, uh, you know, the, the average person who's, who's listening to Joe Rogan, they're getting bad information, but they want to hear bad information. And, you, you know, you think about that and her concern is, well, people, 
are listening to, excuse me, to Joe Rogan for the wrong reasons. They're listening, and, and he's giving this, this bad information in her estimation, and we've just got to do something about it. How can we have people having access to information that, that we don't want them to hear? Now, she didn't say it that way. It's just she called it bad or misinformation. And, and I don't think she has a clue. The people are listening to him because he at least gives them the opportunity to choose for themselves whether they will wrap their minds around it and embrace it or not. But it's their decision to make. It's their choice, not hers. And it's so patronizing, the idea that, well, people are just getting this bad information and we should be doing something to prevent them from getting it. Really? Like what? I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to muzzle everybody who doesn't toe the line? And, and frankly, that's a lot what it sounds like she's advocating. How do we stop people from getting bad information? Now, come on, lovers of freedom know the answer to this. The way you stop people from getting bad information is uh, you let that bad information be out there. You provide better information. You provide a better reason for them to listen to the information that you're sharing which means you can't force them. Okay, we're not going to do the whole clockwork orange thing, you know, bind them down and hold their eyes open with, you know, special instruments so they have to watch and they have to listen and they have to agree. You let them make up their own minds. You persuade. You speak the truth with love and you let people come to the truth at their own pace. It's really, it's the only way to do it. So I'm encouraged. You know, Rogan is uh, is making some big waves right now, but it's not just about him. This is not just about him building the kingdom of Joe, and uh, you know this this is this is he's going to be our new media king. What he is doing is more important. He's showing other voices like me and, and so many others. There's a way around. All of these efforts to keep us, you know, locked down and not uh, not getting that information to, to the public. I'm encouraged by it. I think it's actually, you know, one of the best things that, uh, that could happen to us. I want to see alternative media sites. I want to see different voices out there, and, and that in no way implies that I have to agree with all of them. But I want to hear what they have to say. And it's surprising how often you'll find people who actually have a really solid take. I didn't start doing this program because I intend to get rich and famous off of it. And so far, my plan is working perfectly. I'm neither rich nor famous. But I see a need to speak the truth as I best understand it. I know there are people out there who are looking for credible, timely, principled information upon which they can make better judgments about what is really going on in the world around me. So that's what I strive to do on a daily basis is, you know, be one of those sources of light and information. And I certainly don't have all the answers. I may not even have a very good take on it. But I think the people who come back and listen to this show understand I'm doing my level best to contribute to the brightness of the world rather than trying to, you know, keep it in darkness which I think more accurately describes what a lot of those people trying to suppress points of view out there are doing. We'll be back in just a moment.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. It's an exciting time to buy a home. And if you've been in the market for a home, you understand why I'm saying it's an exciting time. Competition is fierce. My goodness, thousands and thousands of people have been relocating to the Intermountain West. If you are hearing this message anywhere within the state of Utah, particularly if you are looking to secure a mortgage or home loan, from VA loans to traditional loans, even to reverse mortgages, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, those are the folks I would like to encourage you to talk to. Heather has decades of experience. Her company has the stability and the clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. And that's important. So call her at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, go by 619 South Bluff Street. You can visit her there, or you can actually uh, click and access her email. It's in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So if the tide is turning and the consent of the governed is being withdrawn, that would mean there are natural consequences that must follow. I've got a great article here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute that says, now is the time for mass resignations from within the ruling class. I like what he has to say here. He says, if there is a historical precedent for the truckers' revolt in Canada and the populist protests in so many other parts of the world, I'd like to know what it is. It surely sets the record for convoy size, and it is historic for Canada. But he says there's much more going on here, something more fundamental. The two-year imposition of bio-fascist rule by diktat seems ever less tenable. The consent of the governed is being withdrawn, but what comes next seems unclear. He says, we now have two of the most restrictive leaders in the developed world, Justin Trudeau of Canada and Hacinda Ardern of New Zealand, hiding in undisclosed locations, citing the need to quarantine following COVID exposure. Streets globally have filled up with people demanding an end to mandates and lockdowns, calling for accountability, pushing for resignations, denouncing privileged corporations, and crying out for a recognition of basic freedoms and rights. Now note, too, that these movements are spontaneous and from below. In other words, they are populated mostly by the very workers whom governments shoved to face the pathogen two years ago, while the ruling class hid behind their laptops in their living rooms. It was the lockdowns that sharply divided the classes and the mandates that are imposing segregation. Now we're facing a modern allegory to the peasants' revolts in the Middle Ages. See, for a long time, the workers complied bravely, but have been forced to accept medical shots they neither wanted nor believed that they needed. Many are still being denied freedoms they took for granted only two years ago. Their schools non-operational, businesses wrecked, Places of entertainment closed or severely restricted. People turn on the radios and televisions to listen to lectures by ruling class elites who claim to be channeling the science that always ends in the same theme. The rulers are in charge and everyone else must comply no matter what is asked of them. But Jeffrey Tucker says then it became screamingly obvious to the world that none of it worked. It was a gigantic flop and the sky-high cases of late 2021 in most parts of the world put a fine point on it. 
They failed. It was all for naught. This clearly cannot continue. Something has to give. Something has to change. And this change probably will not wait for the next scheduled elections. So what happens in the meantime? Where is this going? Now, he says, we've seen what revolutions look like against monarchies, especially in the 18th and 19th century, against colonial occupation, against totalitarian one-party states, 1989 to 1990, and against banana republic strongmen in the 20th century. But what does revolution look like in developed democracies ruled by entrenched administrative states in which elected politicians serve as little more than a veneer for bureaucracies? Jeffrey Tucker says, since John Locke, John Locke, it is an accepted idea that people have the right to rule themselves and even to replace governments that go too far in denying that right. In theory, the problem of government overreach in democracy is solved by elections. The argument made for such a system is that it allows for peaceful change of a ruling elite, and this is far less socially costly than war and revolution. Now, he says there are many problems with matching theory and reality, among which the people with the real power in the 20th, 21st century rather, are not the people we elect, but those who've gained their privileges through bureaucratic maneuvering and longevity. Now, there are many strange features of the past two years, but one of them that stands out is how utterly undemocratic the trajectory of events has been. He says, when they locked us down, for example, it was the decision of elected autocrats as advised by credentialed experts that were somehow sure that this path would make the virus go away or something like that. When they imposed vaccination mandates, it was because they were sure this is the right path for public health. Now, Jeffrey Tucker points out there were no polls. There was little, if any, input from legislatures at any level. Even from the first lockdowns in the U.S. starting March 8, 2020 in Austin, Texas, there was no consultation with the city council. Neither were citizens asked. The wishes of the small business people were not solicited. The state legislature was left out entirely. It was as if everyone suddenly presumed that the whole country would operate on an administrative dictatorship model and that the guidelines of health bureaucracies with plans for lockdowns that hardly anyone even knew existed trumped all tradition, constitutions, restrictions on state power, and public opinion generally. We all became their servants. And what's crazy is this happened all over the world. And it suddenly became obvious to many people in the world that the systems of government we thought we had, responsive to the public, deferential to rights, controlled by the courts, were no longer in place. There seemed to be a substructure that was hiding in plain sight until it suddenly took full control to the cheers of the media and the presumption that this is just the way things are supposed to be. Tucker says, years ago, I was hanging out in the building of a federal agency when there was a change of guard. A new administration appointed a new person to head it. The only change the bureaucrats noticed was new portraits on the wall. Now, most of these people pride themselves in failing to notice. They know who's in charge, and it's not the people we imagine to elect. They are there for life and face none of the public scrutiny, much less accountability that politicians face daily. Lockdowns and mandates gave them full power, not only over one or two sectors they previously ruled, but the whole of society and all of its functioning. They even controlled how many people we could have in our homes, or whether our businesses could be open, whether we could worship with others and dictate precisely what we're supposed to do with our own bodies. 
Tucker says, whatever happened to the limits on power? The people who put together the systems of government in the 18th century that led to the most prosperous societies in the history of the world knew that restricting government was the key to a stable social order and growing economy. They gave us constitutions and the list of rights, and the courts enforced them. But at some point in history, the ruling class figured out certain workarounds to these restrictions. The administrative state with permanent bureaucrats could achieve things that legislatures could not. So they were gradually unleashed under various pretexts, war, depression, terror threats, and pandemics. Moreover, governments gradually learned to outsource their hegemonic ambitions to the biggest businesses in the private sector, who themselves benefit from increasing the costs of compliance. And the circle has been completed by enlisting big media into the mix of control via access to the class of rulers to receive and broadcast out the line of the day and hurl insults at any dissidents within the population, fringe, etc. This has created what we see in the 21st century, a toxic combination of big tech, big government, big media, all backed by various other industrial interests who benefit more from systems of control than they would from a free and competitive economy. Further, this cabal leveled a radical attack on civil society itself, closing churches, concerts, and civic groups. Now, he says one easy and obvious path away from the current crisis is for the ruling class to admit error, repeal the mandates, and simply allow for common freedoms and rights for everyone. And as easy as that sounds, this solution hits a hard wall when faced with ruling class arrogance, trepidation, and the unwillingness to admit past errors for fear of what that will mean for their political legacies. The people on the streets today and those willing to tell the pollsters that they're fed up are saying, no more. What does it mean for the ruling class not to get away with this nonsense anymore? Well, presuming they don't resign and they don't call off the dogs of mandates and lockdowns, what's the next step? Jeffrey Tucker says, my instincts tell me we're about to discover the answer. Electoral realignment seems inevitable, but what happens before then? The obvious answer to the current instability, he says, is mass resignations within the administrative state among the class of politicians that give it cover, as well as the heads of media organs that have propagandized for them. And he says, in the name of peace, human rights, and the renewal of prosperity and trust, this needs to happen today. Bury the pride. Do what's right. Do it now while there is still time for the revolution to be velvet. I've got a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. It's well worth your read. Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. So I'm glad you could join me today. I hope you will uh, become a subscriber. Here's what you need to do. Just go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Click the subscribe button. It's going to ask you for an email, and I'm going to I'm going to cross my heart and hope to die. I do not uh, share your email information with anybody. I don't share it. I don't sell it. It's just uh, it's just for me, and I will send you a copy of my show notes every day that I do the show. 
Very, very simple. Doesn't cost you a thing. If you do find that uh, you are, are receiving value, if, if you're finding valuable information in accessing this program, I am going to ask you, please, pay close attention to my sponsors. Do business with them wherever possible. They include lifesavingfood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, hslammo.com, sewingandquiltingcenter.com, and monticellocollege.org. And I do appreciate them making this program possible. Well, I think one of the biggest indicators we have that there is a tectonic shift underway in the public consciousness, and you can see that in the pressure campaign on Spotify to remove Joe Rogan. It's kind of interesting, right? Over the, over the weekend, I know there were actually the last couple of days of last week, there was, there was a lot of uh, kerfuffle about, well, you know, Neil Young's demanding that uh, Joe Rogan be removed from Spotify or he'll remove his music. And I guess... Uh, Spotify told Neil Young, hey, there's the door. Now you have other artists stepping up and, and <laughs> saying, well, I'm going to pull my music too. And it's like, people, can we just you know leave the personalities out for just a moment? The basic principle here is if you are trying to silence other people's voices, you're wrong. If you have something better to offer, by all means, step up and offer it. But if you think you've got to silence somebody else, you are engaging in censorship. And that goes for Neil Young or anybody else who, who thinks that, well, you either do what I say, do you not know who I am? If you're trying to silence other people, rather than put a better message out there yourself, you're doing it wrong. I want to back this up with some commentary from Glenn Greenwald. His latest uh, Substack article, The Pressure Campaign on Spotify to Remove Joe Rogan, reveals the religion of liberals censorship. And he says all factions at certain points succumb to the impulse to censor. And he's right. It's not just the liberals on the left. But he says for the Democratic Party's liberal adherents, silencing their adversaries has become their primary project. Glenn Greenwald says American liberals are obsessed with finding new ways to silence and censor their adversaries. Every week, if not every day, they have new targets they want deplatformed, banned, silenced, and otherwise prevented from speaking or being heard. Now, he says, by liberals, he says, I mean the term of self-description used by the dominant wing of the Democratic Party. Now, for years, their preferred censorship tactic was to expand and distort the concept of hate speech to mean views that make us uncomfortable and then demand that such hateful views be prohibited on that basis. Now, for that reason, it's common to hear Democrats assert falsely that the First Amendment's guarantee of free speech does not protect hate speech. Ah, the bogus predicate. Their political culture has long inculcated them to believe that they can comfortably silence whatever views they arbitrarily place into this category without being guilty of censorship. Constitutional illiteracy to the side, Greenwald says, the hate speech framework for justifying censorship is now insufficient because liberals are eager to silence a much broader range of voices than those they can credibly accuse of being hateful. That's why the newest and most popular censorship framework is to claim that their targets are guilty of spreading misinformation or disinformation. And these terms, by design, have no clear or concise meaning. Like the term terrorism, it's their elasticity that makes them so useful. So when liberals' favorite media outlets from CNN and NBC to the New York Times and the Atlantic spent four years disseminating one fabricated Russian story after the next, 
from the Kremlin hacking into Vermont's uh, heating system and Putin's sexual blackmail over Trump to bounties on the heads of U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan, the Biden email archive being Russian disinformation and the magical mystery weapon that injures American brains with cricket noises. None of that is disinformation that requires banishment. Nor are the false claims that COVID's origin has proven to be zoonotic rather than a lab leak. Or the vastly overstated claim that vaccines present transmission, prevent transmission of COVID. Or that Julian Assange stole classified documents and caused people to die. Corporate outlets beloved by liberals are free to spout serious falsehoods without being deemed guilty of disinformation. And because of that, they do so routinely. It's the interesting thing about everything he just listed there. It's all false. None of those things turned out to be true. But you don't get a mea culpa from the, the press, do you? Greenwald says this disinformation term is reserved for those who question liberal pieties, not for those devoted to affirming them. And that's the real functional definition of disinformation and its little cousin, misinformation. It's not possible to disagree with liberals or see the world differently than they see it. The only two choices are unthinking submission to their dogma or acting as an agent of disinformation. Dissent does not exist to them. Any deviation from their worldview is inherently dangerous to the point that it cannot be heard. Now, the data is proving a deeply radical authoritarian strain in the Trump-era Democratic Party politics is ample and has been extensively reported in Glenn Greenwald's Substack. He says Democrats overwhelmingly trust and love the FBI and CIA. Polls show they overwhelmingly favor censorship of the Internet, not only by big tech oligarchs, but also by the state. Leading Democratic Party politicians have repeatedly subpoenaed social media executives and explicitly threatened them with legal and regulatory reprisals if they don't censor more aggressively. A likely violation of the First Amendment, given decades of case law ruling that state officials are barred from coercing private actors to censor for them in ways the Constitution prohibits them from doing directly. He says Democratic officials have used pretexts of COVID, the insurrection, in quotation marks, and Russia to justify their censorship demands. Both Biden and his Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, have urged Silicon Valley to censor more when asked about Joe Rogan and others who air what they call disinformation about COVID. They cheered the use of pro-prosecutor tactics against Michael Flynn and other Russiagate targets, made a hero out of the Capitol Hill police officer who shot and killed the unarmed Ashley Babbitt, voted for an additional $2 billion to expand the functions of the Capitol Police, have demanded and obtained lengthy prison sentences and solitary confinement even for nonviolent January 6th defendants, and even seek to import the war on terror onto domestic soil. He backs all of these up, by the way, with links to each one of them. Okay, I'm not telling you that Glenn Greenwald is infallible, but I'm telling you, if you want a straight take on stuff, this is the guy that you can, can turn to. And, and I, I don't think I've been disappointed yet to see his take. Now, given the climate prevailing in the American liberal faction, Greenwald says this authoritarianism is anything but surprising. For those who convince themselves that they're not battling mere political opponents with a different ideology, but a racist movement, you know, it's that's uh, led by a Hitler-like figure bent on imposing totalitarianism, 
a core defining belief of modern-day Democratic Party politics, it's virtually inevitable they will embrace authoritarianism. When a political movement is subsumed by fear, the orange Hitler will put you in camps and end democracy if he wins again. See, then it's not only expected, but it's even rational to embrace authoritarian tactics, including censorship, to stave off this existential threat. Fear always breeds authoritarianism, which is why manipulating and stimulating that human instinct is the favorite tactic of political demagogues. And when it comes to authoritarian tactics, censorship has become the liberals' north star. Every week brings news of a newly banished heretic. Liberals cheered the news last week that Google's YouTube permanently banned the extremely popular video channel of conservative commentator Dan Bongino. His permanent ban was imposed for the crime of announcing that, moving forward, he would post all of his videos exclusively on the free speech video platform Rumble after receiving a seven-day suspension from Google's overlords for spreading supposed COVID disinformation. What was Bongino's prohibited view that prompted that suspension? Well, he claimed cloth masks do not work to stop the spread of COVID which is a view shared by numerous experts and at least in part by the CDC. And when Bongino disobeyed the seven-day suspension by using an alternative YouTube channel to announce his move to Rumble, liberals cheered Google's permanent ban because the only thing that liberals hate more than platforms that allow diverse views are people failing to obey rules imposed by corporate authorities. There is so much more to this article, and he does touch on the Joe Rogan saga as well with Spotify, I highly recommend. Check out this article from Glenn Greenwald. It's linked in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Take the time to read it. Share it if you feel like it uh, covers the right points. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here to Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. You can go to sewingquiltingcenter.com. I believe they also have the domain sewingandquiltingcenter.com. But look, the bottom line is if someone you know likes to sew, or perhaps they enjoy embroidery, or they, uh, they enjoy long-arm quilting, now, guys, don't you turn your, your nose up at this and say, what kind of a hobby is that? I'm a shooter or I'm a motorcycle rider. Just trust me when I tell you, this is a hobby that people take very seriously. The machines that are available today do things that are absolutely incredible. And there's got to be, you know, a certain sense of satisfaction in being able to either, you know, create your own clothing, your own quilts and things like this to mend your clothing you know, I mean, there's there's a degree of self-sufficiency that comes with that, too. Best of all, though, we're talking about a family-owned business that will not only sell you the machines and the supplies that you need, they actually service the machines. They have classes to teach you how to use them. And those classes never expire. They will take care of you, just like they've been taking care of their customers since 1984. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com. If you're in St. George, Utah... These are the folks you want to go talk to. So, let's talk about something positive here. You want to know the difference between truly living and merely existing? It's living with meaning and purpose. 
I've got a great article here from Barry Brownstein about today you will have an opportunity to make more meaning in your life. Now, that sounds like an opportunity worth seizing. And Barry Brownstein is is a marvelous writer to start with, but this this one really reached out to me. He says, many weeks I receive emails from readers requesting help with COVID-related emotional struggles. So one reader recently asked, how do I go about helping to influence others to see the truth? I do not see many people listening. I'm in despair. I'm starting to feel that the cause is lost and the survival option may be to shrink away into the shadows. Another shared his fears and despair before requesting help, saying, I go to bed every night, worrying about my children's future and feeling powerless to help them. I cannot fathom what living in the World Economic Forum's Great Reset will do to them. I put in a religious exemption and still have not heard from my employer whether it's approved or not. So I go to bed every night thinking tomorrow I may not have a job. Now, Barry Brownstein says those in despair are not alone. Anxiety, fear, and despair are human emotions that are impossible to avoid. He says, to some degree, every human being who walks this planet shares these feelings, as Mark Twain observed in his autobiography, quote, I am the entire human race compacted together. I have found there is no ingredient of the race which I do not possess in either a small or a large way. When it is small compared with the same ingredient in someone else, there's still enough of it for all the purposes of examination. In my contacts with the species, I still find no one who possesses a quality which I do not possess. The shades of difference between other people and me serve to make variety and prevent monotony. But that is all. Broadly speaking, we are all alike. End quote. Now, Barry Brownstein says, being consumed by our thinking and feelings is a common human experience. Typical strategies of resisting feelings, wallowing in feelings, or denying feelings do not work. Psychologist David Reynolds explains the counterproductive ways we try to get rid of feelings. Quote, focusing on feelings may prolong them, particularly when the circumstances that stimulate them reoccur. The more we try and get rid of upsetting feelings directly, the more attention we pay to them, the more they intensify. It is more effective to leave feelings as they are while we undertake the constructive action that will change our circumstances and indirectly affect our emotions. End quote. So Barry says, when we despair, it is because in the current moment, the current day, we are thinking there is nothing I can do. We do not see a path of constructive action. Life seems to lack meaning. We start to dispel feelings of despair as we become more aware of our thinking. We can't control our thinking, but we can recognize our feelings. can only come from our thinking. Try, for example, to feel angry without thinking angry thoughts. We cannot create real meaning for ourselves by resisting life or soaking, stroking rather societal hatreds. Such activities are an anti-purpose. And he says if there's no meaning in our lives or if our purpose is negative, no matter how much time we have, our lives will feel empty. Now, to be sure, he says throughout COVID, the heavy hand of government has reduced opportunities to make meaning in our lives. Adult children are forbidding from, or forbidden rather from comforting elderly parents in nursing homes. Doctors are forbidden or prohibited rather from treating patients with potential life-saving therapeutics. Children are sitting in front of Zoom cameras deprived of childhood learning experiences that come by interacting with others. Friends are scared to visit each other. The well are prohibited from seeing the dying in hospitals. 
Government has done much damage, but so have our individual choices. For many, meaning in life has taken the form of virtue-signaling adherence to the COVID rules. You know, you may know people who find meaning in their constant COVID panic as prescribed by the pseudonymous El Gato Malo. Quote, there is simply put a class of people here who do not want to go back. This purported crisis has given them meaning and elevated their long-simmering social fears and barely suppressed panic and safety-seeking instincts into what they mistook for virtue. End quote. So Barry Brownstein says we read absurd accounts such as of the psychologist who recommended rapid testing in a garage before allowing invited guests to come inside for a Thanksgiving party. The triple vaccinated question, whether it's safe to socialize with the double vaccinated, let alone the unvaccinated. Surely such thoughts occupy much of their mental landscape. Now, Dr. Fauci or the CDC will never link severe cases of COVID to a loss of meaning in people's lives. But research findings give us pause Barry Brownstein says in his book, Life on Purpose, Victor Stretcher, a professor of public health at the University of Michigan, reports evidence that individuals having a strong purpose in life, on average, live longer lives than those with a weak purpose. Research findings indicate eudaimonic well-being benefits immune function directly. Eudaimonic well-being refers to the deeper satisfaction from activities with a greater meaning or purpose. Stress increases when meaning seems fleeting, and we believe we must change our circumstances to achieve happiness. We know stress reduces our immune system's capacity to fight viruses. Now that many seem oblivious to such findings shouldn't surprise us. In his Counter-Revolution of Science, Friedrich Hayek explores why many bureaucrats and politicians have no respect for the rich order created by people pursuing their individual purposes. Hayek writes, quote, They cannot grasp how the independent action of many men can produce coherent wholes, persistent structures of relationships which serve important human purposes without having been designed for that end. This produces a pragmatic interpretation of, of social institutions, which treats all social structures which serve human purposes as the result of deliberate design and which des denies the possibility of an orderly or purposeful arrangement in anything which is not thus constructed. End quote. So in other words, Dr. Fauci and President Biden show little respect for anything beyond what their minds are able to grasp and attempt to control. So, here he goes into a way out of despair. In fact, the way out of despair. Barry Brownstein says many are hoping for a permanent solution to their troubled feelings. We can't think our way out of despair. There are no permanent solutions, but he says there is a process that can lessen the time we spend with troubled feelings. We don't have to allow our feelings to define us. And he says, we're mistaken when we tell ourselves, tomorrow the external circumstances I face will improve and then I will feel better emotionally. Because in truth, our emotional well-being need not depend on external circumstances. In fact, we choose our mindset and our mindset creates the quality of our experience of life. This is good stuff, right? We're going to come back to it in just a few moments. I have a link in the show notes. You can access them at thebrianhydeshow.com. You can also subscribe, and I'll send you a copy of those notes every day to your email inbox. We'll be back in just a moment. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you Barry Brownstein's latest essay. Today you will have an opportunity to make more meaning in your life. This one really resonated with me just because I've been through that process of... uh, I know the difference of what my life was like before I started living with purpose and and how it has felt since I made that commitment that uh, there is a purpose that I'm going to live to fulfill and it is, it's a night and day difference. And it doesn't mean in any way that, uh, you know, my life has been nothing but sunshine and roses ever since I made that decision. Um, there have been some pretty hard times. I've gone through some things which I was like, man, this is, this is one of the tougher things I've had to deal with. But for some reason, when you are moving with purpose, it's just it's so much easier to bear the burden. And I don't think anybody can avoid those burdens in life. I just, I don't think it's possible. In fact, if I could be so bold, I think it's one of the purposes of life is to, to experience all that it has to offer, the good and the bad, and those hardships. Often, you know, they come to us in the form of, oh boy, this here's, here's a hardship, this is really bad. But it's a cleverly disguised opportunity to become a better version of yourself. At least this is what I found. If it doesn't make sense, all I can say is hang in there. It will at some point. Back to, uh, back to Barry Brownstein's article. He says, we are not responsible for how others behave, yet even when it seems otherwise, the human freedom to choose our mindset is within each of us. Man is ultimately self-determining, wrote psychotherapist Viktor Frankl in his seminal work, Man's Search for Meaning. Man does not simply exist, but always decides what his existence will be, what he will become in the next moment. Now, he says, Frankel observed starving concentration camp inmates who gave away their meager bread rations. They may have been few in numbers, yet Frankel's timeless insight followed. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And Frankel instructs, man determines himself whether he gives in to conditions or stands up to them. Every day, every hour offered the opportunity to make a decision, a decision which determined whether you would or would not submit to those powers which threatened to rob you of your very self, your inner freedom, which determined whether or not you would become the plaything of circumstance, renouncing freedom and dignity to become molded into the form of the typical inmate. Now, Barry Brownstein says, look, at this moment, even if our circumstances are unchangeable, Viktor Frankl would urge us to exercise our inner freedom to choose our attitude and our purpose. He says, cultivating timeless values leads to a meaningful life. Frankl instructs that happiness must be obtained indirectly by getting over ourselves. Frankl writes, happiness cannot be pursued. It must ensue. And it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's dedication to a cause greater than oneself or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. In his book, Prisoners of Our Thoughts, 
Alex Patakos shares Frankel's admonition. Quote, each of us has his own inner concentration camp we must deal with, with forgiveness and patience as full human beings as we are and what we will become. End quote. So Barry Brownstein says, reflecting on Frankel's insight, we can ask ourselves, have I become a prisoner of my own despair? Ooh. Kind of an interesting way to look at it, wouldn't you say? In Psychotherapy and Existentialism, Frankel again pointed to our freedom. Ultimately, man is not subject to the conditions that confront him. Rather, these conditions are subject to his decision. Wittingly or unwittingly, he decides whether he will face up or give in, whether or not he will let himself be determined by the conditions. So Barry Brownstein says our freedom to choose is at the heart of Frankel's teachings. In his autobiography, Frankel wrote, I am convinced that in the final analysis, there is no situation that does not contain within it the seed of a meaning. Each moment provides opportunities to make more meaning in our lives by taking in our life by taking more responsibility. So to put Frankel's teaching into practice, we can begin by making more space for meaning to enter. We leave no space for meaning to enter when we are glued to our smartphones or when NPR, CNN, or Fox News is on in the background or when we fill our days with trivial pursuits. He says, in man's search for meaning, Frankel guides us in our search for meaning. A man who becomes conscious of the responsibility he bears toward a human being who affectionately waits for him or to an unfinished work will never be able to throw away his life. He knows the why of his existence and will be able to bear almost any how. Love, Frankel recognized, is the ultimate and highest goal. Now, Barry Brownstein also points out a few anonymous lines often misattributed to Frankel, but discovered by Stephen R. Covey, sum up the power of our decision to choose a mindset that overcomes despair and brings meaning to life. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space lies our freedom and our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our happiness. Barry Brownstein says the search for meaning is an individual journey. Opportunities abound to practice a new mindset. When government bureaucrats and politicians are cruel, we can model kindness in our daily lives. When they whip up hatred using us versus them rhetoric, we can model valuing our shared humanity. When government makes it harder for businesses to flourish, our entrepreneurial insights show the way. No one can ever force us to renounce our inner freedom. Today, like every day, we will have opportunities to make more meaning in our lives. Now, look, I haven't attended a whole lot of, you know, motivational speaking seminars and things like that. I've been to a few, and some were actually quite good and had valuable information. But these insights that Barry Brownstein is offering here speak to my heart. And part of it is because I've, I've lived the experience of, of I know what my life was like before I started to live with purpose. And sometimes, I, I just, I have to point this out, living with purpose sometimes means that you will necessarily have to follow a more difficult path than you would like to follow. In other words, yeah, there's an easier way to do this, but it will rob you of some of that meaning in the end. And if you're really living, you know, for a sense of purpose and you're really trying to to create and build more meaning into your life, 
Sometimes you got to take that tougher path. And sometimes that's meant, you know, I had to pack my family up and we had to move far away. Sometimes it meant the employment opportunity that, uh, that was proffered to me, man, it looked good. Something I would really enjoy doing. It's something that wouldn't even be that difficult. Uh, but something more was required for me to, to get to the next step or to, to, to grow in the ways that I needed to grow. I actually have a good friend who's, who's called me out on this before. He says, Brian, I've never known a person um, who has, has taken on <clears throat> decisions or has made decisions that ultimately were harder than they had to be. But he says, the thing I've always respected about you is that you've done it because you always had some higher purpose in mind. And I may still be nuts. You know, maybe maybe I really am a masochist and I'm just, you know, enjoying inflicting pain on myself. But actually, you know, in, in my heart, I can tell you that uh, those tougher experiences, the things that caused me to strain and to to have to, to stretch myself beyond where I was. At the time, they suck, and there's just no way around it. I don't think you can go through a good growth experience without experiencing real discomfort. That's just part of life. But in every instance, it was worth it. And in every instance, I I feel that it has, has opened doors that could not have been opened otherwise. And I don't want to make this sound like, and I did it all myself. I am just so rugged and so good that I did it all myself. I honestly believe that uh, the, the, the decision to take the, the tougher path for that higher purpose combined with, you know, calling upon God and asking for God's help to achieve those things, that is what always has seemed to carry the day for me. And I don't know who needs to hear that. Maybe it's just me, you know, needing to reaffirm myself. But if you find yourself having to face those kind of decisions, if you find yourself stuck thinking, how can I move forward? You know, the the two things I highly recommend would be um, contemplate what that higher purpose might be. Contemplate what would bring more meaning in your life. And the second part, if you really want to make it happen, take it to God. Ask for help. You have no reason to uh, to believe that, that he would deny you help in becoming the person that you were born to become. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Thank you once again. Doesn't it feel good to be a wrong thinker? Not that it makes you better than anybody else, but just to claim that ownership of your mind and your worldview, especially at a time when there are so many competing forces out there trying to shoehorn you into this viewpoint or that viewpoint and prevent you from even considering anything that uh, the people who really want to control your thinking would call misinformation or disinformation. I don't know. It's exhilarating. And not in a uh, temper tantrum sort of way. It's it's exhilarating in the way that, uh, you know what, I can trust myself 
to dig for the facts, to, to seek out the truth, and to make up my own mind. And sadly, there are a lot of people right now who don't believe that they can do it. They've been bombarded with messages where you're just not good enough. You're broken. You're not smart enough. Where, where's your degree? You don't need one. All you need is an understanding of who you are and what you stand for and a willingness to, to stick your neck out a little bit. Okay, sometimes a lot. So I want to end on a, on a note here of uh, cautious optimism. I like that I see more people standing up. I am a little bit concerned that the, the systems and the people who think it is their prerogative to rule us are going to uh, try to, to, they're going to try to come up with some reason to justify a serious clampdown. And, and this, is, uh, this is because we are approaching the accountability phase. You know, as more people find the courage to stand up to COVID tyranny, it's essential we don't get drawn into the mob mentality. And Alan Stevo has an excellent piece titled, Are You Ready for the Accountability Phrase? And, and some really great ideas for how to deal with this. He says, sometime in the near future, people will snap out of what is happening. Normal will return, an angry public will want accountability. Now, the public health establishment has figured out exactly how to distract you from this, but you must not need you or you must not be distracted. So what we need are people in roles like these. Number one, people friendly enough with local politicians to be able to encourage them privately through a period of accountability, not during a public meeting, not during a yelled out public comment, not over Zoom. Number two, people friendly enough with local editors to get a 500-word op-ed published in the local newspaper. We need people like that. People who can be background explaining the other side of a story to a reporter or editor will be needed. Having some established relationship with people in the media and a reputation for being knowledgeable on this topic will be needed. Number three, people friendly enough with local law enforcement, especially prosecutors, to be able to help them talk over privately what happens next will be needed. Do I expect you uh, to be your local dictator calling the shots on everything? He says, no, but I expect you to have a seat at the table. Once you are at the table, your knowledge will shine. Your sense of what's right will shine. If you're not in the room, you're not in the deal. No representative can represent someone like you. You are one of the most valuable members of your community at a time like the one we are about to go through. And the knowledge you bring, and he says, I'm not using this word lightly, is irreplaceable. No one in your community has the combined local and global knowledge of what is taking place that you do. No matter how big your local freedom cell is, he says, I believe what I have said here is still true. You must understand the unique situation you're in. A situation you've likely never been in and a situation that you'll likely never again be in. The times you are living through will set the stage for the centuries ahead. And I like that he says this. Perfection is not needed of you. You've already laid the groundwork phenomenally. All that is needed of you is to step forward effectively and to keep doing so unceasingly. Your vim and vigor, tactfully delivered, will be enough. Now here he gets into some very specific counsel. Like, obey the truth, not your feelings. Feelings are fleeting, says Alan Stevo. They're meaningful, but they're a poor foundation upon which to build. He says, sometimes people write to me saying, I don't want to turn people off when I present my argument. 
Well, there are ways to present the truth harshly and ways to present the truth gently. And it's good to speak in a way that reaches others. However, if you are in any way avoiding the truth in conversations, then you are playing the simp and are not behaving like the leader this moment needs. This moment needs people like you to rise to the occasion in roles like the above. And you don't get there by being a simp who stands for nothing. You get there by being someone who is clear with everyone around him about his values so that everyone in his community is able to say, love him or hate him, this guy really knows his stuff on this topic. Now, if you're still uncertain about the necessity of truth-telling in this era of deceit, he says, I'll point out that some of my readers were born into this world and expected to be truth-tellers, no matter what. That is the birthright of some of you. Author Stephen Baskerville goes so far as to write, He who is afraid to anger or offend is not yet a man. Please step into your own as a bright, shining light of truth, tactfully delivered, appropriate to the circumstances, no matter what the imagined impact of telling the truth may be. His point is that leadership is needed, and that means you. So he says, don't get tired of being the broken record. Many people in your life are watching you and talking about you, even if you're just a stranger to them. Your public behavior is being talked about in the homes of many people who are slowly understanding that they fell for something bad and followed someone bad to the edge of a cliff and perhaps beyond. So he says, leadership is needed, and that means you, unless, of course, you never want this corona communism to come to an end. If you abrogate the role of leader in your community, there will literally be no leader in your community. Your community may have only one shot at finding an upright leader, and it may be you. The same filthy swamp creatures will stay in power if a legitimate leader does not stand. A legitimate leader who sees this moment for what it is. Leader does not mean person in elected or appointed office. It does not mean the richest, the most influential, or the most popular. Leader is he who acts in a way that others seek to emulate. Those other measures can all be aspects and signals of leadership. But walking the talk and it being a walk that others want to take in their own lives is the most fundamental concept of leadership. And Alan Stevo says this moment demands that of you. And not in waning quality, not in waning qualities and quantities like someone getting tired of the past year or two. He says, the establishment is in its death throes. The narrative is crumbling. The mobs are grumbling. Expect even more extreme, disproportionate, and unpredictable behavior from the establishment, like any person in death throes. But he says, be unfazed. Be not fatigued. Double down. Press in. Do not give in to evil, but proceed ever more boldly against it. The victory is at hand. Now, he brings up something here. Endurance. And this is a great lesson in perspective as well. You thought uh, two years of this was rough? Try 40 years in the wilderness. He says, do you know what an ad hominem is? Ron Paul does. They called Ron Paul every dirty name in the book. For 40 years, he walked in the wilderness in Washington, D.C., repeating the same basic ideas over and over again to anyone who would listen. And for decades, America ran arrogantly into the abyss as far from its blessings as one could imagine often led even further afield by Republicans than Democrats. Nixon's monetary policy was disgusting enough to inspire this small-town doctor to run for Congress. 
the late 1980s likelihood that Vice President and Deep State former CIA Director George H.W. Bush was the future of America was disgusting enough to inspire Ron Paul to run for president against his own party. These behaviors did not ingratiate him to the establishment. In fact, he attracted their ire all the more. Wilderness is probably a gentle word for what he went through. But a remnant were out there quietly watching what he was doing and listening to what he was saying. Seemingly unfazed by even the dirtiest low blows, the man proceeded to speak the truth out in the wilderness. And then, in 2007, something special happened. Late in his career, he ran for president again and found something very special just below the surface. Americans were finally hungry for truth. In addition to having many other impacts, Ron Paul's 2008 campaign inspired Bitcoin. Had there not been a Ron Paul 2008, there wouldn't be a Bitcoin. He inspired the Tea Party, the rebirth of American values, some of the most ardent activists of Corona communism. Increased exodus from the Democratic Party, spreading Austrian economics, making the Federal Bank, the Federal Reserve Bank, unable to be mentioned politically without being booed by clear thinkers across the spectrum. And the list goes on. I'll let you pick the rest of this article up on your own. It's linked in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Holy cow. Alan Stevo's got some great advice, but he's he's right. If you have any inkling that this matters, you are being called to be a leader. It's not all going to look the same for all of us, so find your niche and lead. But don't shy away from it. You are needed now more than ever. This is The Brian Hyde Show.